there's three parables. Okay, lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons. So this will be the first two. The audio will be from 2009. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can learn what you've said, understand your word by your grace, and realize how kind and gracious and loving you are. And may people, all of us, understand what it means to be found when we were lost and didn't even know it. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're moving into Luke chapter 15. And Luke 15, I'm going to do the first 10 verses this morning. The next week, we'll start in on the parable of the prodigal son. This is a beautiful chapter of Scripture here that people have rejoiced in for down through the centuries. Certainly the prodigal son itself is one of the most famous of all parables and one that has captured people's hearts and minds as they've heard it preached. But let's start with the first ten verses, and I have an overview for where we're going to go today. Luke 15, 1, sinners hear Jesus, and that word hear is going to be important. In, two, in, in verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes grumble. And 3 through 6, Luke 15, joy in finding the lost, the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 7, joy in heaven when a sinner repents. 8 and 9, joy in finding the lost, the parable of the lost coin. Luke 15, 10, joy in heaven when a sinner repents. So we see the theme of joy, particularly heaven's joy, in finding the lost. Let's start with verse 1 now and set the scene. It says in verse 1, and I'm using the New King James Version because the New American Standard got something wrong. So and I'll tell you what that was. Then all the tax gatherers and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Now, the New American Standard has listen. It isn't technically wrong, but... Obviously, the ones doing the translating didn't realize that there was a play of words that was going on earlier in Luke with the word here, okay? And verse, the verse just before this in uh, Luke uh, 14.35, it says, Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it was a call to listen to God. And so, the, remember the chapter headings are artificial? Okay, they were put in after the fact. The very next verse, and the call to come and listen, the sinners and tax gatherers do. And, and that's supposed to show us something. We're supposed to notice that. Oh, come and hear Jesus. Who does? The sinners and the tax gatherers. And also, the reason I like the New King James better is draw near, or drew near, is a better translation than coming. Yeah, the word literally means to approach. And so the idea is that the sinners were drawing near and hearing two things that God wants people to do. To draw near to Jesus Christ through the means he's provided in the gospel and to listen to what he says. So here we have two despised groups, tax gatherers and sinners. 
Tax gatherers were collaborators. They were despised by most everybody. They, they made money by basically getting a franchise and collecting all they could. So they pay a flat fee to the Rome. Whatever they collect beyond that, they, they make as profit. And that was exceedingly profitable to do that. But they were hated and they were often abusive type people. So they would be the despised, the people that you wouldn't want at your banquet. But this theme was said earlier in Luke because in Luke 5, 29 and 30 at the banquet at Levi's house, there were tax gatherers and Jesus was eating with them. And the sinners would be those that were unclean for whatever reason, the ones that weren't up to the Pharisee standards and were people that were basically lost and rejected and outcasts of Israel. And they come and they listen. And the implication is they're listening with ears to hear and hearts to obey. Blessed is he who listens. In fact, let me show you this theme. I have a slide just to bring this up to speed. It takes so many years to get through Luke. I don't want us to lose the, the beauty of the themes and how Luke introduces ideas and then builds on them and builds on them and tells us the gospel that way. Back in Luke six forty-seven and 48, the one who hears is the one, akuo in the Greek, I mean akauo, akauo in the Greek, probably where the root for our word acoustic, he hears and builds on the rock. So it's a good thing. In Luke 8, 8b, he who has ears to hear, come, listen to God. Luke 9, 35, from heaven, God says, this is my beloved son, hear, hear, listen to him. In Luke 9, 30, or excuse me, in Luke eleven twenty five, the one who hears and observes is a blessed one. And then the one I mentioned, Luke 14, 35, just before this verse, hear, come and hear. So the sinners are doing the very thing that pleases God. They're doing the thing that we ought to be doing, which is hearing and heeding the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's emphatic that there were a lot of them, it says all, all tax gatherers and sinners, if not literal, it would mean many of them. So there's a, a lot of people coming to hear Jesus Christ. Now let's see what happens in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees kept themselves separate from sinners. They kept themselves, in fact, the name Pharisee means separate. And they prided themselves in staying clean, undefiled, separate, and kept not only the law, but the oral traditions as well. And so they would have nothing to confer to the Pharisees but their uncleanness, the sinners, that is. And so they'd stay away from them. And they would have nothing to do with them. Remember, they lived in an honor-shame society. And who you ate with said a lot about who you honored. If you invited someone to eat with you, you conferred honor upon that person. And in fact, the greetings that they made to one another at a banquet or at a meal always mentioned honor. The one who is invited is expected to say upon coming to the meal, I'm honored that you've invited me to your meal, 
and may God honor this house. And the host is expected to say, I'm honored that you've attended. You confer honor to me by being here. And to eat together meant to have fellowship, friendship, closeness, togetherness. It meant something. So here is Jesus eating with sinners. And the Pharisees are grumbling because he thereby honors people who they despise. Sinners and tax gatherers. You can't confer honor to a sinner or a tax gatherer, can you? And then Jesus would be defiling himself. He would be bringing shame upon himself by associating with such persons. And uh, this causes them to be very upset and very disgusted with this, uh, what's going on. And it causes them to grumble. You know how important this eating with is it has to do with these banquets and our fellowship. Remember, the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper, and the Lord is honoring us by inviting us sinners to his supper. We'll go to the Lord's Supper. And that's why it was so wicked in Corinth when they shamed the poor Christians, because this is a banquet that confers honor. And when you shame someone at the Lord's Supper... That is a very wicked thing, and you'll lead and drink judgment to yourself if you do that. Now, um, you can see how important this is in, in Galatians when Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians, and he was rebuked by Paul. Why? Because he was shaming those Christians. To refuse to eat is to say, I'm ashamed of you, and I don't want you at my banquet. And if we say that to another Christian, we're sinning. Why? Because if God brings someone into his family and he pays a price, the price of the blood of Jesus, to bring that person in and make them his beloved son or daughter, God has brought honor to that person by bringing him into his family. And if we won't have anything to do with them and we shun them and refuse to eat with them, we dishonor God who saved them. We dishonor God who brought them into his family. Now, we've got to talk about this grumbling. This time, the New American Standard had a, did a good job in translating this. The, the word here uh, is based on the word gongudzo, and it's here, dia gongudzo, which intensifies it. And it's only used a number of times. It's not a very common word, but most of the usages in the entire Bible are about the wilderness wandering and the people grumbling. Okay, in John 6, they grumble. And there it's obviously associated with uh, the Old Testament because the people said, Moses gave us manna. What kind of bread, Jesus, are you going to give us? And Jesus starts talking about his uh, letting down his life, his flesh and his blood, and the people grumble. So by using this word, gangudzo, Luke is purposely linking this incident to the grumblers in Israel's history. These Pharisees were being just like their fathers in the wilderness who grumbled when God gave them manna. They're being just like their fathers in the wilderness who grumbled when they found out that there were giants in the promised land and they decided they didn't want to go in. They are uh, in rebellion. So what they're doing is they're putting themselves as people who are opposed to God's purposes. Let me just show you this a little bit. 
I ran this, um, looked for this word in the Septuagint with my computer, and I found it, and almost every time it's found in the Old Testament, it's linked to grumbling against God. The Pharisees are grumbling against God. Here's just one of the instances. Numbers 14, 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? Ganguzo. I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Take note. This sort of grumbling is directed against God. The implication is Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is doing God's bidding by eating with sinners, which we'll find out means finding the lost. And the leaders of Israel are grumbling against God. They don't want these lost sinners found. As we'll see, these sinners were lost on their watch. They're the leaders. They're the ones who are supposed to find the lost and guard the lost sheep. But they don't want them found. So they grumble against God. Now I put other passages there because I know some of you print the PowerPoint. If I would remember to put it up, I apologize. I, I fell asleep at a switch, forgot to put it up on the web yesterday. So, um, but I put all these verses here so you can look them up yourselves. But mostly it's either the account of the grumbling in the wilderness or in the Psalms, when the Psalms talk about the event looking back at the past. And it's also used in Luke in 5.30, Luke 5.30, when they grumbled about Levi's banquet because Jesus was eating with sinners. And in 19.7, they grumble about Jesus eating with sinners. And in 1 Corinthians 10.10, it's a reference to the wilderness grumblers using the same word. And then in John 6, it's a reference again to grumbling against God because you don't like God's provision. They don't like how God provided for them. And so they're grumbling because they don't like how God sent Messiah to save the lost. It's an amazing thing. So the parables, there's going to be three parables. We'll just deal with two of them today. The parables are an answer to the Pharisees. They're grumbling against God, and Jesus tells them three parables just to highlight how much they are not in keeping with God's purposes. In fact, the, th- the third parable, the prodigal son, the Pharisees actually show up in the parable as the older brother. The older brother in that parable represents the Pharisees, the one who refuses to rejoice when the lost are found. When the dead son comes alive, he doesn't like it. Luke 15, 3 and 4. So he told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Which one among you? Well, first of all, the Pharisees are probably insulted by this because they weren't allowed to be shepherds. They considered shepherds unclean, and in some of these lists of professions that Pharisees were not allowed to participate in, or occupations, shepherds were one of them. The irony is that in Israel's history, shepherds were the good guys, all right? Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. The Lord's a shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, right? And those were the good people. The shepherds were good. 
But then they got together in their ways of being separate. That's what Pharisee means, separate. And they didn't like what shepherds typically did. Some of them took sheep into other people's places. Some of them stole. Some of them were, of course, unclean because their trade caused them to not be able to keep all the cleanliness laws that the Pharisees would like. So they couldn't be a shepherd. So they're probably insulted that Jesus even would tell them to imagine themselves as shepherds. Which one of you, if you have a hundred sheep, and they're going, huh, us have sheep? We wouldn't do that. By the way, I'm indebted to Kenneth Bailey for a lot of the details as far as the customs that I'll be sharing with you today. He has his first book, Poet and Peasant, has some, something like 60 pages just on Luke 15. And then he has another little book called The Cross and the Prodigal that's just about Luke 15. It's written from a more popular perspective rather than, than a critical scholarly one. Both of them very good. So that's where I got a lot of these details. But Bailey thinks that has here probably means to be responsible for. And the setting would be something like this. A person who was wealthy enough to own a hundred sheep would not be out with his own sheep. He'd hire somebody or he'd get some poor relatives to watch them. So this would not be the case that one person owned all hundred of the sheep and he was out there with them because that's not how it worked. But Bailey thinks that the background would be like a village where there's an extended clan within the village. And no one of them would be wealthy enough to have that many sheep, but they would typically own 5, 10, 15 sheep. And the clan would take the sheep out from the village in the morning, out into the where they're going to go. It's actually called wilderness here. Pasture is not a very good translation. Uh, they go out into the wilderness with the sheep, with two or three of them, with the whole herd, that are the extended clan's sheep that they collectively own. And if one of these sheep is separated from the group, the, the sheep is lost. And the implication here, the tense in the Greek, has lost, eris active participle, the tense would indicate that they, they were responsible for losing it. The shepherd, whoever was out there with those sheep, was responsible for losing one of them, not pay, paying close enough attention. Now the terrain in Israel is very, very rough and very difficult. Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for many, many years, said that more than once he'd seen a tourist head into that kind of train with a camera and come back out on a stretcher. All right? So the sheep going off into that area and getting lost is not going to be someplace where you want to go get the sheep very easily. It's not, it's not easy. Now, what happens is a sheep is kind of a herd-type animal, and when it gets lost, it gets disoriented, and according to actual shepherds, what happens is the sheep will just lay down and won't get up. It'll, it'll find somewhere and it'll lay down, and, and it's not going to get up again. It's just going to lay there and bleat. And so the shepherd has to find the sheep, and he's responsible to. In fact, if he doesn't come back with either the sheep or a part of the sheep, like some to show that a wolf got it, then it's assumed he stole the sheep and sold it to somebody. So he has to either find the sheep or find evidence that the sheep was killed. And often over very rugged and difficult terrain. When the, when the shepherd would go and find the sheep, the way he would bring it back was he'd put it up over his neck and carry it out uh, in that way. So they're expected to agree. When they hear this story, they knew this practice, and they're expected to agree with these things. They would leave the 99 
defined to one. They would all agree, yes, that's what would happen. It has to happen. Number two, they would rejoice at carrying it home. That would happen too. If you found your sheep, it's a very valuable commodity, and you've, you've made up for having lost it, you would bring it home and you would be rejoicing. And then there would be an occasion for rejoicing because when they come back, the whole clan comes back with all these sheep, and all of them have a sense of joy at the restoration of the lost sheep. All of this is true to life. Look at, let's look at verse 5. I want to talk about the shoulders here. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, this is verse 6, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. This may not seem that like it to us, but this is an absolutely realistic story of what would literally happen in such an occasion. This was really, actually, an occasion for joy. Now, the shepherd has to find the sheep, and the sheep is lost somewhere in this very rugged terrain. And the sheep's not going to get up. He's just going to lay there. The sheep weighs about 70 pounds. So the shepherd typically would take the sheep, Bailey says, tie the legs together, and put it over his back, over the back of his neck, his belly up against the back of his neck. And then he would walk out over hills, cross rocks, whatever he had to do to bring that sheep all the way home. This is a picture of Jesus saving the lost. The picture is of the high cost that Jesus goes to to save the lost. There are so many things going on here and so many undercurrents. One of the implications is this. The Pharisees were the would-be shepherds of Israel. They think they're the leaders. The lost in Israel were very much findable. They are not willing to do it. In fact, they want the lost to stay lost because they shun them. They shun them as unclean and unworthy to have table fellowship with. Jesus comes and he finds the lost and he has joy at the price he pays. The joy was said before him. So Jesus joyfully brings the lost sheep back home. Now, this point is made clearly. I want to talk about some themes, and then we'll go to the next verse. Here are some themes in this parable that we learn. First of all, what about the shepherd? Well, the shepherd accepts responsibility for the lost. Number two, the shepherd searches without counting the cost. Number three, the shepherd rejoices in the burden of restoration. Rejoices in the burden of restoration And four, the shepherd rejoices with the community at the restoration. The Pharisees have done none of this. What are some of the other themes? Number one, there's joy. The shepherd has joy at finding the lost. This is absolutely true. He has joy in the burden of the restoration. He's actually rejoicing as he does the very, very difficult job of carrying a heavy sheep through rugged terrain back home. And it shows us unconditioned grace that God has in seeking the lost. And then we get to the next theme, repentance. That's our next slide, Luke 15 and verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I listened to John MacArthur on this section, and he, was, he made a pretty good point, I thought. He said this, There's one thing that we can do here on earth now that we know brings joy to God. And that is, seek the lost. Seek the lost. Because when one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. Bob Stein, Dr. Bob Stein says that this is a circumlocution for God. They often didn't want to use God's name. So when it talks about heaven, the joy in heaven, it's talking about God's joy. God has joy over one sinner who repents. And there's more joy in, in heaven over that than there is joy over the 99 righteous persons. Now this is actually ironic and uh, almost sarcastic. The 99 righteous persons don't exist. They don't. How do we know that? Well, the, the, even the Pharisees would have to know that if they know their scriptures. What does it say in Isaiah 53, 6? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All of the sheep went astray. There's no 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. Also, also, in Luke 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All the sheep have gone astray. So there's an irony in a, these non-existent 99 righteous persons who need no repentance are only like that in their mind. This is a response of the Pharisees and scribes and a rebuke of their attitudes. They are opposed to the very thing that brings God joy. Can you imagine putting yourself in opposition to God's joy? Can you imagine putting yourself in opposition to the very purposes of God laid out in the Scripture? Knowing that God is my shepherd who leads me in the paths of righteousness and I don't want to do what is necessary, the lost can be found. We want them to stay lost. And this attitude is going to be illustrated in the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. Beloved, I hope that for every one of us, it's our joy to bring the gospel to the lost. It's our joy to find the lost sheep and bring them back. Let's go to the parable of the coins. So we have one more parable, or two more actually, but this is the last one we're going to look at. Two, two par- parables after this that make the same point. Or what woman, now let me stop right there. This is Luke's practice to have couplets with a man and a woman. Earlier it says the man plants a mustard seed and a woman has leaven and, and a man and a woman. Earlier in Luke 4, you have a man and a woman illustrating righteous Gentiles, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman. And so Luke wants us to see that everybody is included here. Now, the Pharisees are going to be insulted at this one too. It's pretty bad to be compared to a shepherd, but this is worse. For the Pharisees, I'm not saying that. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> there was a prayer, that I've, I've, if you look this up in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, there was a prayer that was written down that was stated often 
by Pharisees who would say, I thank thee, Lord, I was not born a woman. So now they're uh, to imagine a woman in, as uh, illustrating somebody that did something right that they won't do. So there's a little uh, jab there that's going to make them not too happy. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The word here in the Greek is drachma, which is a silver coin, and probably about a day's worth of pay, but that's not the point. The point of the silver coin was that it was valuable. And most of their society operated on a barter system, and there wasn't a lot of money changing hands. So having silver coin was a way of storing the family's wealth, the way of keeping value and wealth. So it's very important to her, very important. Now, according to Kenneth Bailey, um, that some, some women would actually have a necklace with the coins, a pierced hole in them, and wear the coins. It's a way of keeping it safe, and it also has a double purpose of being a necklace. But he says, Bailey says, more likely in this case, was the coins to be held into a rag, a little rag that a peasant would have. You put the coins in and tie a knot. And that way you could carry your coins about. Now, evidently, one of them fell out. The knot wasn't tied properly. So she's negligent, and so she must find this coin because it would be a horrible thing to, to lose it. Now, they didn't have windows. So the house is dark. There might be a little slit up higher for a little air to get in and out, but very little light. So it's true to life, she has to light a lamp. And the floor, the type of material they use for the floor could have cracks in it. It may fall down in a crack. And it was not an easy thing to find the coin. But she searches it until she finds it. And this would be true to life, and they'd all have to agree, yep, exactly, that's exactly what would happen. And then it says in verse 9, And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now, friends and neighbors in the Greek are in the feminine, so this would be true to life. She would just gather her women friends, and together they would rejoice that the coin had been found. And she takes responsibility for having lost it. She took responsibility. And then it says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven's joy is the finding of the lost. This should be so important to us. It should be important to our our church. It should be important to us as individual Christians. It's God's joy that the lost would be found. So Jesus is coming into history to find the lost, to seek and save the lost. And that should be our priority. We should be preaching the gospel and we should be looking for those lost and bringing them back into God's fold. Now let's look at some applications. We want to talk about Christ as the good shepherd and Then we want to talk about the attitudes of under-shepherds that we should have and how we need to seek the lost and participate in the joy of heaven. Let's turn to the familiar 23rd Psalm. What a beautiful psalm. There's implications, by the way, about the deity of Christ going on here. I hope you see that. Yeah, because the Lord, Yahweh, is, is the shepherd, and Jesus comes as the good shepherd. 
When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he's claiming equality with God, because that's God's role. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, there's a lot there, but let me make some important points about how Christ is the good shepherd. The first thing that we need to know is the shepherd always has our best interests in mind as his sheep. The safety and well-being of those sheep under his care are the most important thing to him in his job as a shepherd. Nothing is more important than preserving the well-being of those sheep. And they'll go to any lengths, at any cost, to make sure that that happens. And so that's why he finds the green pasture, because that's for the well-being of the sheep. The quiet waters. Now here, it's talking about humans. He restores my soul. How does Jesus, our shepherd? First of all, Jesus saves us by paying the penalty for our sins, dying for our sins, being raised on the third day, and gives us the opportunity to come to him through the gospel. So the first thing he does is he saves us. And he does that and imparts his own righteousness. Our righteousness was just unrighteousness. There are no 99 that don't need repentance. We all need to repent. We were unrighteous. We were unwicked. We were like tax gatherers and sinners. We were sinners. We weren't worthy to be in God's household. We were aliens. We were foreigners. And we had no place in the family of God. None. But Jesus came and died and rose again so that if we believe in him, he imputes his righteousness. And then, so that's restoring our soul and bringing salvation. Then he guides me in the paths of righteousness. But notice why. For his name's sake. That is a very, very important promise. And it's one I hope you all uh, are excited about. How do you know that God is going to sanctify you? How do you know that God's going to change your life? How do you know that God is going to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ? How do you know all of these things are going to happen? Because God has invested the honor of his name upon you. It says, for his name's sake. He's doing this because he's called us sons and daughters. And he has a vested interest in bringing us to glory to demonstrate his own justice and his own glory and his own grace and his own mercy. So God is committed to guide us in the paths of righteousness and he's committed to that because he of his name, for the sake of his name. We see that throughout the Old Testament where God says, I'm about to act for the sake of my name. Not for your sake, O house of Israel, but for the sake of my name. And so the, in the New Testament it says, whoever names the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity because we're Jesus' sheep and he wants to guide us in the paths of righteousness. But notice the next thing it says here that Jesus does as the shepherd. You prepare a table before me. This is getting us back to the idea of the banquet. The idea of Jesus eating with sinners. He is the one who's hosting the banquet. Jesus hosting the banquet. He prepares the table. As John MacArthur pointed out, job a woman normally would do. But Jesus does it. You prepare a table before me. 
And therefore, we have been invited to a Messianic banquet, and we're the sinners that he invited to it. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves that we're the sinners that were invited to the Lord's banquet. And the Lord's Supper is the table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. While we're still, we're still here on the scene of history, we're surrounded by God's enemies, by those who are opposed to the things of God. And then it says, you have anointed my head. Now, if you remember the banquet in Luke 7, remember the, Jesus went to a Pharisee's house for a banquet, for a meal? And while he was there, this woman from the city, a sinner, came in and began to weep on his feet. And remember I preached on that? And then uh, Jesus said, I came to your house and you did not anoint my head. He was a bad host. It was expected that the host would, probably with olive oil, would anoint the head of the guest. That's a sign of inviting them as an honored guest into the banquet. The host failed to do that in, in Luke 7. So when the woman came and wept on Jesus' feet, she did even better. <laughs> she had, and, and, uh, she, and so there's a making up for his failure. So Jesus is anointing our head means that he's hosting us and he's taking the host's duty and doing it, and he does so with an abundance. So that's the great truth of Christ as the good shepherd who came to Israel to find the lost sheep. Let's turn to Isaiah 40, 10 and 11. Behold the Lord God in the, in the Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh, so invoking God's covenant name, uh, Yahweh will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and his army will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, an interesting prophecy in the Old Testament it doesn't always lay it out in chronological order. And many prophecies have material about the first advent and the second advent right next to each other, like in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where Jesus quotes part of it, but not the part having to do with the second advent. Now here, the first verse is the second advent, verse 10. Verse 11 began at the first advent, when Jesus came to shepherd and bring the lost sheep. So it says here, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and his army will gather the lambs. So God comes and gathers the lambs. Jesus came and claimed to be the good shepherd. Jesus was claiming deity. Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be doing the role that God would do as he came to be the shepherd of Israel who will bring uh, the lost in and cause rejoicing amongst us and joy in heaven as he does so. Now, he specifically makes the claim to be this shepherd in John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. Okay, so God is the shepherd, Yahweh is the shepherd, Jesus is the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So how do we find out who God's sheep are? What do they look like before they become sheep? Like anybody else, sinners. 
Everybody out there, sinners, they need repentance. Well, the only way that we can find out who God's sheep are, go out and preach the gospel. I think Bailey pointed out concerning the prodigal son, the main difference between the prodigal son and the other son is the prodigal son came to know he was lost. In fact, he made a really good point, and I agree with this. Notice that in the parable of the lost sheep, what the sheep contributed to his salvation. He got lost. <laughs> okay. The sheep got lost. That's what he did. So what does it mean to repent? Well, in that, in that parable, it says one sinner comes to repentance. Repentance in that parable means being found. It's not that the sinner, out of his own ability, does something, repent, and then after that, grace comes to him to find him. What the sinner has to do is come to understand he's lost. All right? And that's why we preach the law and the gospel. Everyone needs to know they're lost. And when you realize you, that you're lost and you're sheep, all you can do is lay there until the shepherd comes and gets you and bleat. <laughs> Can't even get up. That's how powerless the sheep is. Can't even get up. So what we need to know then is how can we bring in the Lord's lost sheep. Well, we do so by preaching the gospel, and it's my honor and privilege to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said, Jesus came into history as God incarnate. And he lived a sinless life. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Jesus did many miracles. Jesus predicted his own resurrection from the dead and accomplished it. And he bodily ascended into heaven after he died and was raised on the third day. He, when he died on the cross, he shed his blood. We talk about the blood because it's the price that Jesus paid so that we could come into his flock. It's the price he paid. The, the good shepherd in the parable paid a terrible price to have to go through rough terrain with a heavy sheep. But Jesus paid the price of his blood that we might be forgiven. So how do you know you're lost? Because you broke God's law. Everybody that's ever sinned is lost and has broken God's law and is bound for hell. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He's a loving Savior. He calls you to repent and bring joy to heaven. There's rejoicing. Today, repent and believe the gospel. Now, what about under-shepherds? Let's look at Ezekiel 34 too. I think this is very important. Because we've got to remember that the whole thing started with the scribes and Pharisees grumbling because Jesus was eating with sinners. So the Pharisees and scribes don't have God's best interest in mind. And they don't have the flock of Israel's interest in mind either. There was a complaint about that in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus saith the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? What does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. What does the good shepherd do? He leads the sheep by still waters. What does the shepherd do? He leads them to green pastures. The shepherd is there for only one reason, and that's the well-being of those sheep. And if he's not going to look after that, he has no business with the sheep. But as long as there's been 
religion. Happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the time of Jesus with the Pharisees. It happened in Roman Catholicism, in church history. It happens in all manner of religions. There have always been those who would put themselves in authority for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. And they don't have the interests of the people in mind. And they have their own interests. So that's what was going on in Israel. They were feeding themselves. They were like the Pharisees and scribes who couldn't even rejoice with God when God found a lost sheep. They were opposed to the joy of heaven. Verse 3, Ezekiel 34. You eat the fat, clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. They're there to take advantage of the sheep and not care for them and look after them. Verse 4. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity, you've dominated them. If you don't feed the flock, the flock will be sick. It's guaranteed. Now, what's the Lord going to do? In contrast, Ezekiel 11, 34, 11, and 12a. For thus saith the Lord God, again, Adonai Yahweh, behold, or Adonai Yahweh, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. God is going to find his own sheep. So the shepherds of Israel were abusing the flock, using them for their own privileges, using them for their own status, using them for their own wealth. And God says, you're not feeding my sheep, so I'm going to come and I'm going to find my own sheep. Who did that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to find the lost sheep and bring them into God's fold. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day which he's among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. Let's go to 1 Peter now. Go into the New Testament, 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock. Notice again, We use the term pastor in English, which is simply the word for shepherd. And so here elders are to, this is a verb form, shepherd the flock. So the role of elder and pastor is the same. So the elders are the ones who are to look after the well-being of the sheep in any given congregation. Shepherd the flock of God. Notice whose flock it is. God's. Who are the elders going to answer to in the end? God. It's his flock. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sword game, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. Here again is a warning about about the abuse of power, which is what happened in Israel, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. So the, the chief shepherd ought to be the one we're concerned about. What does Jesus want to have happen to his sheep? He wants them found. He wants them fed. He wants them protected. He wants them cared for. He wants them nurtured. 
He wants them to be taken care of with all the care that he would do himself if he were here on the scene of history. This is reiterated in Acts 20, 28 and 29. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Notice the price. He purchased with his own blood. That shows you the intensity. That shows you the necessity. That shows you how badly the Lord wants us to care for his flock. He paid a great price to have a flock. And he put some persons in charge of caring for it. That job is so important, we dare not neglect any part of it that God wants done. And the, the hear from sheep all around the world who have been abused by shepherds, it breaks my heart. It literally is just heartbreaking. My heart goes out to those people. Pray that God would raise up elders in local churches that would do this job. Every local church needs them. And there seems to be a shortage of such shepherds. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. David was a man after his own heart, and he learned how to be a man after his own heart, after God's own heart, as a shepherd. When he had to literally drive off real wild beasts. And then he cared for Israel. One more passage. Back to Ezekiel 34:11, and then... Luke 19.10, just to show the deity of Christ here. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And look how it happens, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God sent his Son to do this job. Son of Man is a reference to uh, Daniel, the Messiah. But Jesus ascended in heaven... And he left us here to find the Lord's flock and to care for them. Let's pray together that God would help us in our part of this. Thank you for allowing us to share something from the past. That was from 2009. We're going to do the prodigal son as the sermon today. And so this, I think, was really a good decided to do this to set the stage for that because then there's one more parable. So we had a hundred sheep, one's lost, ten coins, one's lost, now two sons. They're both lost. Now who will be found? And this week and next, we intend to cover that and get it into a more updated format. Those of you who were were late, I just want to explain why we did this. Thank you for um, hungering. One thing we know about sheep, they hunger to be fed pure spiritual food. And there's no better food than the word of God taught clearly according to the author's intent. Paul, I don't have a roving mic, but go ahead, I'll hear you. Oh, there's just one more element that I would like to, if you would put in place the idea of God granting repentance. That is, the sheep himself can't necessarily just come to his own intellectual understanding of his lostness. Yes, I promise that we'll address that in a sermon. Well, but let me just say this because I don't know how 
how this will lay out. I have more slides than I usually do now. Back then I was young and I had 30 slides, now we have 12. <laughs> uh, but the content can still be the same. If you look at the layout of the parables in Luke, it's unbelievably brilliant how it's done. And Kenneth Bailey is the best person I've seen who can analyze the structure and then see how things go. So typically, you have a reverse parallel structure. So here's somebody, boom, boom, boom. Then the middle is the turning point. So before Luke 15 was Luke 12, the parable of the of the rich fool. And so in the parable of the rich fool, the guy says, here's this person with everything he ever needs. He'll build bigger barns. And then in the middle, he starts talking to himself. But that's the turning point. This, what do you call that? A soliloquy? Okay. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger. So then it goes back to the conclusion, which is the point. So what we'll see in the prodigal is the prodigal does an outrageous thing that no, it was unthinkable. And he ends up in the worst place anybody could be. And then he starts his thought process. That's the center point. Now, what's repentance? I'll talk about that in a sermon. Let me say something else about commentaries. I have better and newer commentaries that have the latest understanding and the Greek. But there are a few that I have now that I didn't have in 2009 who cite Bailey's work. And one of them literally said, well, I don't, I don't agree with this because he's reading his theology into it. But that's not right because this is the point. And I'll talk about that in my sermon. What we want to know is what the author intends, not what we think somebody is saying or reading into it or whatever. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that we that the Son of Man came to seek and find that which was lost. And God uses his means for us to know we're lost, but in the end, he takes the initiative to find us. The point was the Pharisees and scribes, the separate ones and the scholars, didn't like that idea. They didn't want to admit they're lost. So there's nothing more powerful than what the Bible actually says. Uh, Brian. Um, we discussed this a little bit this morning, Bob. I, I'd like you to touch on, okay, we have the, uh, the shepherd who finds the lost sheep, and we know that the shepherd has the lost sheep, then the found sheep, best interests uh, at heart. Are we content with the circumstances that we're in? So will that be touched on in the... Uh, between the two parables, I think it was touched on here in the sermon that from 2009. As we put these things out and do podcasts for Critical Issues Commentary, which is another ministry I mentioned there, we actually get feedback from around different parts of the world. And the shocking thing is that most Christians have never been taught just clear Christian theology. And so 
we're having to, I really think this has to be explained. God has our best interests in mind. Some people that I knew decades ago called and said, well, I don't know what to do. My life is just, it didn't work out like I thought. And I said, well, read Romans 8, 28 to the end of the chapter. That should comfort you. Well, what's the point of that? They don't, the doctrine of providence, not understood. God's grace and how he changes us, not understood. That we are safe, not understood. How can it be that the most basic, necessary Christian promises and teachings are not understood around the whole world of Christendom, for the most part, not ever. Some people have them in their creeds, but they don't believe their own creeds. So this all has to get reinforced. The point is, the only thing that matters is what the Holy Spirit-inspired author says and means. The author determines the meaning, not the reader. It's not what we would like it to say, but what the Holy Spirit has said. The parables, the text, the history, it's all conveying God's meaning to us. And the people that knew the data flat out did not like it. Can you imagine? The Lord's my shepherd. Well, we love that. The, the Lord as the shepherd shows up, we don't like you. You dine with sinners. We think, oh, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. We're all like that until God changes our heart. And we really need the Lord to help us, all of us. So by God's grace, I intend to share the truth of, some of you saw the DVD from 2009, but I want to redo that this week and next. Next week, Eric will be back and teach on the church age and Daniel's 70th week. But this helps set the stage for what we hopefully, by God's grace, will learn in the sermon that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And I'm so glad he did. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for showing such kindness and mercy and love to us helpless, lost sinners who didn't even want to serve you, but you were so kind. May we have a heart that would show your love to each other and to the lost and to find those lost sheep. And may we understand that you will indeed complete the work that you began in us because you have invited us to an honored position at your table. And thank you, Lord, for everyone and that's come and wants to hear and give us grace to accurately preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear saints. We'll see you upstairs.